All right, so after 34 years, Insight into Government has finally entered the podcast world. Welcome to our very first issue of Insight Pints, the show where we take MLAs and other political figures in the province of Alberta, share a drink with them, and just talk about current events, talk about life. The reason why we're doing it this way, instead of the traditional Q&A that you would see in press conferences or in other forms of media, is simply that we have the opportunity to have a real conversation and we can have that genuine back and forth. And what better way to do that than over a glass of a favorite beverage? It doesn't have to be a beer, even though we're called Insight Pints, let's be real, Insight Wine, Insight Scotch, Insight Whiskey, just doesn't roll off the tongue quite the same way. So we figured this is a great way to give you access to MLAs and other political figures in a way that you don't generally get to see because even though they work in the legislature and House of Commons, whatever the case may be, they are people too, and they want to have these genuine conversations. That's why they got into this business after all. So without further ado, we kind of want to get right into it. And our first guest today is the critic for children's services with the NDP, Racky Pancholi. Racky, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you for our first uh, guest. So it's nice because what we're going to be doing as we go down the road is we're going to be reaching out to all sides. It's not just going to be those on the left, those on the right, or anywhere else on the spectrum, even though it's, we know it's not linear anymore. It's sort of a quadrant and some would even argue it's more than a quadrant now, but the whole point is we want to have genuine conversation. We want to make everybody understand that it's possible to have a political conversation without getting at each other's throats the way you see on social media these days, because Twitter isn't real life. A good friend of mine said that. So I figured it was a good quote to lead today off with. So Again, the whole thing that we're doing with this today is we're starting off with a drink. And I know that we mentioned Inside Pints, but Racky, you actually brought on a wine that's, uh, it's not a local wine, but it's uh, something made in Argentina. So how does that tie into uh, Edmonton White Mud? Well, thanks for asking, Aaron. I was excited to actually uh, be able to bring a beverage to normally I have to hide those, but now I get to actually bring it in. So yeah, so today I'm, uh, I brought the bottle with me too. It's called The Ridge and it's a Malbec. And the reason why I wanted to bring this, oh, great, looks fantastic. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the reason why I wanted to bring this one is it's actually, it's called The Ridge Vines because it's named after one of the community leagues in my writing of Edmonton White Mud. Uh, which is called The Ridge, and uh, they basically have partnered with one of the fantastic local uh, wine shops in our city, and it's right in our constituency, Vines uh, Wine Shop, and they um, partnered to have this wine uh, named after The Ridge, and uh, $5 from the purchase of every bottle goes to TRAC, which is, stands for Terwilliger Riverbend Advisory Council, so that's the advisory council for all the community leagues um, it spans all of Edmonton White Mud. It also includes a little bit of some other constituencies, but all of the community leagues in my riding are part of track. And so if, when you buy a bottle of this wine, this fabulous Malbec, okay, um, it actually goes to support track and the great work they do in our community and uh, our community leagues. So I was thrilled to be able to bring it today. <laughs> Fantastic. And you know what? I, like I said before we got on the air, I said that uh, I'm not much of a wine person myself. Having said that, uh, I was noticing this one a bit, and the berries that are coming off of it are incredibly nice. I mean, I've, I dive more into the whiskey myself, so anytime I can get those fruity notes and not just that strong alcohol scent is always a really nice uh, 
experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little pampered. My husband actually is, is more of the wine connoisseur in our household, and I'll admit that he normally picks the beverages that we drink, but uh, I've insisted on, on adding the ridge into our rotation, and he's been very happy to, to be drinking it and supporting it as well. So uh, it's been a very regular addition to our, our drinking schedule in our house. <laughs> I think we're all doing just a little bit more these days because of the pandemic. <laughs> we're at home a little more, so happy to support my, uh, my community and my riding at the same time as enjoying a great wine. Absolutely. Well, I think it's fitting to start the podcast today with a quick cheers. So I know we can't do an actual glass click, but we'll do it that way. Thanks. <laughs> Try not to spill I, red wine in my nice white sweater. <laughs> and I've got, I know you can't see it, but I've got really white carpet underneath me. So I'm trying my best to be very cautious right now. All right. So let's just get right into it. I usually, before we go into any sort of interview that I do, I like to do a little bit of research on the person that we have, whether it be looking at their LinkedIn, taking a look at their Twitter. And I was looking at yours a little bit earlier today. I saw that you had a little bit of a slip up this weekend. What happened there? Yeah, it's funny. I posted on Twitter earlier today. I'm still in recovery about five days, so two days before Christmas. I took a very, as I described it on Twitter, because that's what it looked like, an inelegant fall down the hardwood stairs in my house. Uh, right on my tailbone down about four or five stairs and Oof. just sat in a heap at the bottom. <laughs> my husband came over when he heard the thump and this, what he said was he looked at me like, oh, he's like, the, the tough part is knowing your age, this is going to hurt more in a couple days. And it's oh, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> he says that, Aaron, because he's actually about three years younger than I am. So he's about to be from my age. Um, and it's true. So I have been kind of waylaid over the last uh, few days over Christmas because I just couldn't move much. And um Today is actually the first day of feeling kind of up and at it again. But you know what? It was actually one of those things. I'm not a person who, um, I guess, chills out very well. I'm somebody who's kind of overly productive and very busy and always has a to-do list. And I had no choice over the last five days to kind of stay put in one spot. And um, you know what? It turned out to be a bit of a blessing, right? Because I had no choice. I had to sit down on the couch and I got to just really chill out and relax, spend some time with my kids, watch some TV, read a book. Um, and it kind of forced me to take that step back that I was supposed to be doing anyways over the Christmas holidays, but uh, <laughs> usually I'm not very good at it. I've got two young kids, they're five and seven, so it's usually a busy time, but because of the pandemic, everything's a little bit quieter. And so while I was not thrilled with the, uh, with the pain of falling down the stairs, <laughs> it, was, um, it was good. It was, it was a time to kind of sit back and, and actually uh, chill out and, and uh, not rush around as I usually do. So I'm, I'm finding the, the silver linings in it for sure. Totally. And we know that MLAs aren't sitting every day in the legislature, but at the same time, even when you're not sitting, there's still a lot to work behind the scenes. So it obviously is good to get a little bit of that downtime once in a while. Yeah, 100%. I would say actually there's very little downtime as an MLA. It's one of those uh, strange things that I don't think people really realize until um, maybe they get an insight into the job or you, you get the job yourself. But um, it's a, it's very busy work, right? The legislature is only one piece of it. And of course, those are scheduled times where we actually have to be sitting in the legislature, but there's um, a significant amount of work that goes around preparing to be in the legislature, but then of course, being active in your constituency. Um, and of course, uh, my critic portfolio uh, for children's services, there are a lot of stakeholders, a lot of people who want to talk to you and, and meet with you. So it's a very busy job. And so uh, I'm not, I haven't been very good in this first um, year and a half, two years of actually taking time off. Um, so this has kind of forced me to do it. So, For sure. And speaking of busy jobs, before you entered the legislature, you were working as a lawyer with uh, McLennan Ross, I believe it was. That's right. So, and before that, you were working in other areas. But what was it about entering the legislature this time? Because you were on a, another podcast with Ryan Jesperson earlier saying that 
you hadn't been politically active prior to the 2019 election. So what was it about that timing that seemed right for you to jump into uh, politics? Uh, yeah, so that's true. Like, so the four years, um, I am an NDP MLA, obviously, um, but I was not, uh, I was not overly politically active in those four years that the NDP were in government. Um, as I mentioned on, on Ryan's podcast, uh, you know, my, my, I was in the thick of having kids and uh, my daughter had just been born after the NDP were elected in 2015. I had a two year old son as well. Um, so I was just really busy working full time as a lawyer and, and having my kids and uh, managing life. What triggered me um, to actually get involved and decide to throw my, my name in the ring uh, to be an MLA was, uh, I talk about this all the time when I'm trying to encourage more women to run for politics, is that I was asked to run. And I honestly can tell you, I don't think that that was on my radar um, to run in 2019. Um, I, I certainly had thought about the idea of politics at some point in my future. Um, but the reason why I did it in 2019 is because quite frankly, I was asked to. Um, I was approached um, to run about uh, six months before the election. And it was one of those moments where it just felt like uh, everything came together exactly at the right time. I hadn't thought of it myself, <laughs> but um, I suddenly sat back and I realized, you know what, um, I'm looking at my kids and I'm thinking this is a critical time for what, what's, what's Alberta gonna look like for them? And I had watched um, former Premier Notley as leader and watched the things that she had put forward, which I felt were um, part of a vision for a progressive Alberta that I believed in for my kids. I believed in as somebody who lived here. Uh, and all of a sudden I had this opportunity to be part of that. And um, I, yeah, it was a bit of a leap of faith because I, I tell people all the time, you don't actually choose to be an MLA. You, you don't, you choose to run to be an MLA, right? Obviously the voters have to be the ones to elect you. So um, I don't know if I honestly would have run had I not been asked to do it. And uh, I just, I had the conversation with my husband and we talked about it for weeks and I talked to friends and um, people who knew me professionally and socially and through my volunteer work. And I said, you know, this is what I've been asked to do. What do you think? And everybody was very supportive and positive. And uh, the big question when you decide to run for office is, okay, you know, people say that, yeah, you should do it. But I'm like, but will you help me? Because you can't do it alone, right? So I had a lot of people really saying, if you want to do this, I'm, I'm there for you. I'm going to help you in whatever way I can. And um, so, yeah, it just, it, it was a leap of faith. But I, I really believed that um, it was a turning point for Alberta. And I had something to say. And I had something I wanted to contribute to the conversation. And I wanted to be able to tell my kids that I had, worked as hard as I could to try to shape the Alberta that they would grow up in, in a way that I believed it, it should look. So um, yeah, I just, perfect storm, I talk about it. It just took the leap. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's just it. It's, and perfect storm is actually a great way to describe politics because it is anything but smooth sailing. You could have a majority mandate for many, many years, but as you go, there's going to be things you have to deal with. And I mean, as a first time MLA, having to deal with the pandemic and COVID and all the other things that have come with it in your first term, no one signed up for that. You have to deal with it as it comes, but you don't sign up to deal with that. So I guess, speaking of that, having come into an MLA role in your first time, actually jumping into a shadow cabinet role with children's services, you have to sort of watch it on both the federal and the municipal or provincial level, simply because there's a lot going on. The Trudeau government has mentioned that they're making childcare a priority for themselves, but their vision looks a little different from what the provincial NDPs does. So when the feds announced their fiscal update on November 30th, they did include quite a bit of new information that would be coming out for children's services. And part of that include a childcare plan. Um, 
I know you don't really criticize the federal politics as well. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, just critic between uh, provincial and ministerial. Um, what do you think of the federal plan that just came out not long ago? Well, so um, thanks for the question, Aaron, because, you know, obviously that's uh, an incredibly important conversation that's been going on in this country for decades, right? The idea of a, of a federal national child care strategy. Um, when I talked to so many advocates in the area, they've been like, yeah, we've heard this talk before, right? Like it's been, been around for a long time. So what I'd say is that I think, I think it's encouraging to hear that there is a, a commitment right now from the current federal government to a national child care strategy. I think there's probably some recognition that we can't have a, a really strong early learning and child care um, across this country unless there is a national strategy for that. Um, there has to be some federal support because honestly to, to implement a, a, an adequate and appropriate child care uh, strategy for every province takes dollars, right? And, and it needs the, the federal government to put those dollars in. So, you know, I'm not, um, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably apprehensive, but also optimistic about the idea of a federal uh, child care strategy. My apprehension is only because we've heard this talk before, and I'd like to see what's really going to happen. Uh, but of course, we know that it has to, it's only going to be effective if the provinces, and I'm looking, of course, at Alberta, uh, signs on and, and, is, uh, and is fully uh, participating in it. And I think what we've seen so far is a hesitation, right, from, from the current provincial government. And I actually don't necessarily think that what the federal government is talking about is um, inconsistent with what the NDP had in mind in terms of a, a child care strategy. Certainly the federal strategy isn't as specific as the $25 per day pilot project that we rolled out. Um, but we that $25 per day pilot project was rolled out as a result of federal funding when the NDP were in government. So certainly if the goal is quality, affordable, and accessible childcare at the federal level, we agree with those objectives uh, from a provincial level, but we need the provincial government right now to sign on. And what we're hearing is great apprehension for probably political reasons, more so than actually looking at what would benefit Alberta working parents and Alberta children. Um, and that's what's frustrating to me. So I think a, a federal strategy is important, but we need to, the province to take early learning and childcare seriously. Um, and they're currently are not. And I know we're not, we're not trying to get too political here or too partisan, um, but it's been a really big disappointment. When I talk about what, you know, inspired me to run for the NDP in, in 2019, a big part of that was the fact that we finally had a premier that took early learning and childcare seriously. The $25 per day pilot project was inspirational to me as a working parent. Um, it is life-changing. It's life-changing for families. It's life-changing for kids. It's also probably the surest bet economic policy that uh, any government could take, particularly now at what we've seen through the pandemic and we've seen how many parents have been pushed out of the workforce um, and how many are struggling to get back in because they can't afford childcare. So um, I think it is a, a critically important economic and social policy. And I think if the federal government can push our province, uh, provincial government forward, I think that's a good thing. Um, and I hope that our current provincial government won't use politics as a reason to fail to participate. But so far, I'm not very optimistic based on their comments. So I'm going to keep pushing for that. I, I really want to hold um, the province to account on it. I, I maintain childcare is part of a part of education, and this is not just me saying this, it's, you know, it's a provincial responsibility. So the federal government can provide the funds and provide a strategy, but ultimately the provinces are responsible for making sure that all children, from not just the day they walk through the doors of the school, but all children have access to early learning and uh, quality childcare, that's the responsibility of the province. 
For sure. And we all know at this point that when it comes to economic recovery, that you need people in the workforce. And a part of the way to do that is to have people being able to go and have their children being taken care of while they're gone. So it's not so much a handout as it is an actual utility, for lack of a better word. But at the same time, you mentioned it very well when it comes to the federal politics side of things that there is a dollar figure to be associated with this. And I don't have the number in front of me at this time because I've only got a small laptop in front of me and I can't have the three monitors that I usually do. But when it comes to the previous pilot project that the NDP had put in, it was tens of millions of dollars for limited spacing. So I, I know we can't peek into a crystal ball right now to see what Alberta's finances are going to look like in 2023. But hypothetically right now, what would we be able to do to be able to take the money that we need and put it into such a program if it were to exist today as it were rolled out universally for $25 a day? Yeah, so actually, thanks for that, Aaron. So we've actually have uh, kind of mapped out what that would look like. We've we put forward a proposal on affordable early learning and childcare that's part of our albertasfuture.ca uh, economic policy strategy. So there's a full, fully fleshed out proposal there on that website that I encourage people to take a look at. And absolutely right. Like we're not going to shy away from the fact that rolling out affordable universal childcare across the province costs money. It does. We've costed out about $900 million a year. That's, that's sort of what we're looking at. Now, I know that that number jumps out as a big, big dollar figure, right? Um, but we have to talk about what the economic benefits of that are, because um, it, it's clear that there's incredible economic benefits, both short-term and long-term. So when we talk about getting Albertans back into the workforce, and let's be clear, we're really talking about women, right? Like we're talking about uh, the fact that when, uh, when parents are struggling to afford childcare, it's generally, and it's a generalization, but it's based in fact, it is women who step out of the workforce. So low-income families absolutely need support, financial support, and we have that through a subsidy program, which is still available even through the $25 per day program. But it's really important to capture how many middle-income and even high-income families, this is why we're talking about universal childcare, what the economic benefit of getting them back into the workforce is, right? Because I know in my circles, many uh, professional women who've looked at it and said, you know what, like uh, I, I look at childcare, it's going to cost about $1,200 to $1,300 per, per child per month maybe it's better for me to just step out of the workforce than to just work to pay for childcare, right? And if that's middle-income families who wouldn't qualify for subsidies. So if those middle-income parents are stepping out and high-income parents, I mean, if they can also, this is a cap on childcare. It's not free childcare. It's a cap on it, right? It's capping the fees at about $525 per month. All of those families then are able to go back to work. They're able to pay taxes. They're able to have more disposable income to spend in the economy, in the local economy. It employs more people, right? We're talking about early childhood educators, uh, but also other women getting back in the workforce, whatever their work may be. And it's also the long-term economic benefit for kids, right? We know that you invest in those critical early years, fewer health, education, criminal interventions later on. It's absolutely, uh, it's, it, you know, the words that have been described is that it's, it's the silver bullet of economic and social policy. Um, it has the best guaranteed return on investment of anything we can do. We, you know, we know governments make choices all the time about huge amounts of dollars. We saw the current government invest $1.5 billion off the top, another $6 billion down the road um, into a pipeline that might not happen. This is about $900 million a year fully implemented across the province in all licensed childcare spaces, and it is a guaranteed return on investment. So 
I, you know, I get it when people say that sounds like a lot of money. I, of course it is. Of course it is. But you will find that there is absolutely no better economic investment that we can make than investing in early learning and childcare. It is, uh, it is the silver bullet uh, of economic and social policy. So, um, yeah, and, I, and I, I think we need to get serious about that. And I think the pandemic has really highlighted how much we need working parents to get back to work uh, and how much uh, we, those cracks have formed. So, um, you know, when we talk about an economic recovery plan, we talk about all these pieces. This is a key piece, and it can be transformational to our economy and to our kids. And on albertasfuture.ca, I was taking a look at that earlier, and I noticed the first point on the proposal was release unspent budget mm -hmm. 2021 funding for child care to stabilize the sector and minimize parent fee increases, which sounds great. But the question is, where, how much money do you think is on the table right now that isn't being spent in that area? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Aaron. So, um, so currently um, in the 2020-2021 budget, which has already been allocated, of course, um, there's roughly about $33 million per month that's allocated for childcare. And that $33 million goes out primarily to parent subsidies and to wage top-ups to early childhood educators. Since the beginning of this fiscal year, we know that childcare centers were shut down almost entirely for two months. And that we know that since they reopened in June, um, childcare centers and programs across the province are running at about 50% capacity. So that's because COVID has said they can't have the same number of kids that they normally have. We know parents have stayed home with their kids. Parents have left the workforce. They can't afford childcare right now. Um, so we know that every month they're not spending, the current provincial government is not spending what they already have in their budget for childcare. Um, at the last, and now I've asked this question a number of times in the legislature um, and the minister has not sort of uh, clarified as to how much is actually available. My estimates based on what we've talked about, the capacity of the system and what their budget is, is that there's well over $120 million that is unspent. So this isn't new dollars. These are dollars that were already part of the children's services budget for childcare. And we're saying, look, we know childcare centers are struggling right now. They are absolutely struggling. A lot of them are talking about closing. Many of them are talking about um, having to increase fees in January, which just makes it less affordable for, for parents. That Those dollars should be spent on childcare right now. It's not even new dollars. We're saying use your existing budget and invest it to keep the sector alive and to keep fees down for parents. Um, that's what we need to do right now. So that's why it's number one on our proposal uh, is to make sure that we're investing Alberta dollars that were set aside for childcare in childcare right now. No, fair enough. And I'm glad you mentioned the minister, too, because I don't really want to go into sort of that back and forth that you two have had in the past. But the one thing I want to do touch on is as a new MLA and someone in a shadow cabinet role, how are you finding that relationship happens on an operational level with the minister? Because obviously there's far more to being a critic than there is just playing contrarian in question period. What does that look like on the daily basis? Because a lot of our readers and listeners might not know. Yeah, and I mean, I think um, I think sometimes that when you, especially when you look at social media and you look at question period, it does look like it's you know the critic versus the minister, right? That's very much how it's positioned, um, and um, you know I think sometimes that's more effective than not. But I don't see that as my job. My job is not simply to. Um, I guess, critique everything the current minister does within her portfolio. My job, and probably what I spent most of my time as critic, uh, is actually speaking to stakeholders and parents and hearing their perspectives. 
I immerse myself very much and also reading all the documents. I'm, I don't have a ministry at my disposal, right? I'm a critic. So I have to teach myself a lot about what's happening in the ministry and to be able to identify where there are issues uh, and to ask those questions. Now, certainly I ask them in question period. And of course, there's a little bit of theater that goes around with that. I mean, if anybody's watched question period sees that. Um, <laughs> But it is, I think it's an important part of, I try to keep my questions focused on the issues, right, which are very, there are very significant issues that I do my research and I talk to people and I talk to the stakeholders to get an idea of what the challenges are. There's also a number of situations where um, I will go directly to the minister on certain questions um, that don't need to be um, I guess, uh, you know, the, I'm asking questions on behalf of stakeholders saying, this is what I'm hearing. Can you provide some clarity? Uh, and we can have a very good relationship that way. And we have had a good relationship that way. And I hope that continues. Um, and certainly when we saw Bill 39 coming through the legislature, which was recently just passed, uh, which was around changes to childcare licensing, there were discussions I had with the minister one-on-one um, -on, -one on some of those things. But we have to, we have to remind, I guess, you know, I remind people that um, it's not a very, uh, as a new MLA, I've become very clear, it's not a balanced relationship, right? I mean, um, obviously government has a significant amount of control and information uh, and, and power um, that, um, that the opposition simply does not have. And that's, that's fine. That's our system. That's the way it should be. Um, but uh, my job is to try to get as much information and ask the questions that people and Albertans and, and constituents and stakeholders are asking me about. And um, sometimes asking those questions does not have to be uh, considered contrarian, right? I think sometimes it's, those are genuine questions. And uh, of course, there are certain policy issues that we'll never agree on, right? Obviously, uh, uh, the minister and, and, our, and myself take different policy positions on things such as universal affordable childcare. But that doesn't mean that it, it isn't something that a lot of Albertans still care about. And I still have to ask those questions, especially because I believe very strongly in it myself. Um, but asking questions in and of itself is our democratic system. It's our process, right? We have to be able to do that. And it can't always be uh, deemed uh, to be, you know, difficult or contrarian just because we're asking the questions. I think that's my job. So, and I'm trying to do it as well as I can. <laughs> well, and like you said, question period is a lot of theater. A lot of people think that there is quite a bit of adversity there. And maybe to some degree there is. But when it comes to that, you really are trying to put the show on. You're showing how passionate you are about the issue and the other side shows how passionate they are about their side of things and like you said that's just the way democracy works that's the way it should be that's how we start to get those questions fleshed out that you don't normally get to see and to a greater extent too you get to actually watch committee where a great deal of the real democracy happens where you really get to flesh out a lot of things whether it be private members bills or other things that have been referred to various committees in general so we're still a while away from it, but I kind of want to start wrapping up with looking at 2023, because I know it's way too early to start talking about the next election. But as we saw after the 2019 election, the NDP really locked down Edmonton, but we also saw the UCP start to really nail down rural Alberta. And in Alberta, there's sort of the rule that you have to have one of Edmonton or two of Edmonton, Calgary, and rural Alberta. So it's really looking like Calgary is going to be that battleground going forward. And as an Edmonton MLA, obviously you're Seat's never going to be secured. If you ever think your seat's secured in politics, it's just not how it works, unfortunately. But what is your role in trying to help improve your party's chances in Calgary? 
Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question too. And I, I begin by saying I absolutely agree with you. I do not take my my seat for granted, and and I certainly never would. Um, you know, my seat has a very long uh, and varied history of many different political parties. But for the longest time, of course, we're held by the Progressive Conservatives, um, most notably, of course, by Dave Hancock, who had been the MLA for many years, who I actually worked for um, when he was Minister of Education. Uh, I worked in Alberta Education during that time. We worked together quite closely, and I have a very good working relationship with him right now as well. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, but I have a lot of respect for the voters of Edmonton White Mud in particular, which I have to earn their vote every single day. And uh, and I, I don't take that for granted. And so I do think it's very important that I work hard to um, connect with my constituents and make sure that I'm hearing what they have to say and reflecting their views um, in the legislature. But yes, you're right. I think we also have to think about um, what does 2023 look like and how does it look like for Calgary? So certainly, um, you know, what are the advantages of having a critic portfolio um, well, I think it's probably true of any critic portfolio, but it's very true of, of uh, children's services and childcare is that this is an issue that resonates very strongly across the province. I mean, if we're talking about affordable childcare being a challenge, it's probably the most challenging in, uh, in Calgary. And certainly um, when we're talking about access to childcare, that's a huge rural Alberta challenge as well. And that is, and that's something I'm hearing a lot of. Um, so I certainly spend uh, a fair bit of time speaking with um, stakeholders and, uh, and individuals in Calgary. I've also made it a, a point in my role as critic to actively um, connect with like the Calgary Chamber of Commerce um, and the Alberta's Chambers of Commerce um, to talk about um, particularly early learning and childcare as an economic strategy is something they should be, uh, that's on their radar, it already is, which is great. Um, so yeah, I mean, I see that as part of my job as well. Yes, I represent Edmonton White Mud, but I want to uh, reflect the concerns, and I think I do that even in the legislature in my critic portfolio, of Albertans, right, across the province. And I think that resonates deeply uh, with a lot of people. One upside, I have to say, of uh, the pandemic and Zoom, although I think we're all a little bit sick of Zoom. Um, <laughs> but you know what? It's actually made it really easy for me to be connecting with a lot of folks in Calgary quite regularly, um, as well as a lot of people in rural Alberta um, to talk about uh, what, we're, what, what we're doing as part of Alberta's future um, and what, we're doing as, what I'm doing as a critic for children's services. I've been spending quite a bit of time doing that. Um, and as soon as, you know, things get a little bit more normal after the pandemic and we can travel, I, I will be spending some time in Calgary. I was doing that before the pandemic hit and I'll be doing that again. Um, there are some issues that, um, I mean, I would say most issues transcend our, our constituencies, right? Um, so there are certainly things that uh, we're talking about that re resonate very deeply with Calgarians and with rural Albertans. And I think there's a lot of people asking a lot of questions right now um, about the about the government's uh, trajectory and the choices they've made. Um, and I'm certainly want to be positioning ourselves as very open to having those conversations. That's part of the initiative behind Alberta's future, right? Is to really say, look, let's have the conversation. Doesn't matter who you think you've kind of traditionally voted for. Um, we need uh, a strong economic policy that reflects all Albertans' concerns. So yeah, I've, I've, I've been playing a key role in that and I will continue to do that going forward for sure. Well, and I think it goes without saying that even though the election period doesn't start until 2023, the unofficial campaign period for both parties is really going to begin in 2021 when the budget's released, because that's going to be the plan that sort of outlines how the ECP plans to get us economically strong again. 
while also being able to get us out of this health crisis. And that's something that I'm not going to pretend to have the answers to. That's something far above my head here. But at the same time, that's something we're going to be watching closely. And I know you guys are going to be spending a lot of time focusing on as well. So uh, with that, I just want to say that it's been a pleasure having you on. I could talk about this for hours and we could go forever. But uh, it was great having this chat with you. And thank you for suggesting the awesome wine. Like I said, I'm not a wine drinker, but that goes down very nicely. And uh, I'm sure I can split that with my fiance. I'm sure she'd enjoy it as well. I will pass your I will pass your uh, your uh, commendation on to uh to the to, to the community leagues and divine telling them that you enjoyed it. They'll be happy to hear that. For sure. And anybody watching on YouTube or on uh, listening on Spotify, feel free to give them a look. They're just at Vines in Twitter on 23rd and Rabbit Hill Road. So free, feel free to give them a uh, quick look. But other than that, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Insight in the government, we encourage you to take a look at insightalberta.ca to take a look at our newsletter. Feel free to subscribe. Otherwise, we will see you all in 2021. Cheers. Thanks, Aaron. Cheers. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks.